0: Section 39 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4 by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 18, Part 1 Of the Popish Mass How it not only profanes, but annihilates the Lord's Supper The principal heads of this chapter are 1. The Abomination of the Mass, Section 1 Its manifold impiety included under five heads, Sections 2-7 through seven. Its origin described, sections 8, 9, 2, of the name of sacrifice which the ancients gave to the Holy Supper, section 10-12, an apposite discussion on sacrifice, refuting the arguments of the Papists for the sacrifice of the Mass, sections 13-18, 3. A Summary of the Doctrine of the Christian Church Respecting Sacraments Paving the Way for the Subsequent Discussion of the Five Sacraments Falsely So-Called Section 19.20 Sections 1. The chief of all the abominations set up in opposition to the Lord's Supper is the Papal Mass. A description of it. 2. Its impiety is 5 1. Its intolerable blasphemy in substituting a priest, to him the only priest. Objections of the Papists answered. 3. Impiety of the Mass continued. 2. It overthrows the cross of Christ by setting up an altar. Objections answered. 4. Other objections answered. 5. Impiety of the Mass continued. 3. It banishes the remembrance of Christ's death. It crucifies Christ afresh. Objections answered. 6. Impiety of the Mass continued. 4. It robs us of the benefits of Christ's death. 7. Impiety of the Mass continued. 5. It abolishes the Lord's Supper. In the Supper, the Father offers Christ to us. In the Mass, priestlings offer Christ to the Father. The Supper is a sacrament common to all Christians, The Mass confined to one priest. 8. The Origin of the Mass Private Masses an Impious Profanation of the Supper 9. This Abomination Unknown to the Pure Church It has no foundation in the word of God. 10. Second part of the chapter. Some of the ancients call the supper a sacrifice, but not propitiatory, as the papists do the Mass. This proved by passages from Augustine. 11. Some of the ancients seem to have declined too much to the shadows of the law. 12. Great distinction to be made between the Mosaic Sacrifices and the Lord's Supper, which is called a Eucharistic Sacrifice. Same rule in this discussion. 13. The terms Sacrifice and Priest. Different kinds of sacrifices. 1. Propitiatory. 2. Eucharistic. None propitiatory but the death of Christ. 14. The Lord's Supper not properly called a propitiatory sacrifice. Still less can the Popish Mass be so called. Those who mutter over the Mass cannot be called priests. 15. Their vanity proved even by Plato. 16. To the Eucharistic class of sacrifice belong all offices of piety and charity. This species of sacrifice has no connection with the appeasing of God. 17. Prayer, thanksgiving, and other exercises of piety, called sacrifices. In this sense the Lord's Supper called the Eucharist. In the same sense, all believers are priests. 18. Conclusion Names given to the Mass. 19. Last part of the chapter. Recapitulating the views which ought to be held concerning baptism and the Lord's Supper. Why the Lord's Supper is, and baptism is not, repeated. 20. Christians should be contented with these two sacraments. They are abolished by the sacraments decreed by men. 1. By these and similar inventions Satan has attempted to adulterate and envelop the sacred supper of Christ as with thick darkness, that its purity might not be preserved in the church. But the head of this horrid abomination was, when he raised a sign by which it was not only obscured and perverted, but altogether obliterated and abolished, Vanished away and disappeared from the memory of man. Namely, when, with most pestilential error, he blinded almost the whole world into the belief that the Mass was a sacrifice and oblation for obtaining the remission of sins. I say nothing as to the way in which the sounder schoolmen at first received this dogma. I leave them with their puzzling subtleties, which, however they may be defended by cavilling, are to be repudiated by all good men, because all they do is to envelop the brightness of the supper in great darkness. Bidding adieu to them, therefore, let my readers understand that I am here combating that opinion with which the Roman Antichrist and his prophets have imbued the whole world, viz. that the Mass is a work by which the priest who offers Christ and the others who in the oblation receive him gain merit with God, or that it is an expiatory victim by which they regain the favor of God. And this is not merely the common opinion of the vulgar. But, THE VERY ACT HAS BEEN SO ARRANGED AS TO BE A KIND OF PROPITIATION, BY WHICH SATISFACTION IS MADE TO GOD, for THE LIVING, AND THE DEAD. THIS IS ALSO EXPRESSED BY THE WORDS EMPLOYED, AND THE SAME THING MAY BE INFERRED FROM DAILY PRACTICE. I AM AWARE HOW DEEPLY THIS PLAGUE HAS STRUCK ITS ROOTS, UNDER WHAT A SEMBLANCE OF GOOD IT CONCEALS ITS TRUE CHARACTER bearing the name of Christ before it, and making many believe that under the single name of Mass is comprehended the whole sum of faith. But when it shall have been most clearly proved by the Word of God that this Mass, however glossed and splendid, offers the greatest insult to Christ, suppresses and buries His cross, consigns his death to oblivion, takes away the benefit which it was designed to convey, enervates and dissipates the sacrament, by which the remembrance of his death was retained, will its roots be so deep that this most powerful axe, the word of God, will not cut it down and destroy it, will any semblance be so specious that this light will not expose the lurking evil? 2. Let us show, therefore, as was proposed in the first place, that in the Mass intolerable blasphemy and insult are offered to Christ. For He was not appointed priest and pontiff by the Father for a time merely as priests were appointed under the Old Testament. Since their life was mortal, their priesthood could not be immortal, and hence there was need of successors, who might ever and anon be substituted in the room of the dead. But Christ, being immortal, had not the least occasion to have a vicar substituted for him. Wherefore he was appointed by his father a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, that he might eternally exercise a permanent priesthood. This mystery had been typified long before in Melchizedek, whom Scripture, after once introducing as the priest of the living God, never afterwards mentions, as if he had no end of life. In this way, Christ is said to be a priest after his order. But those who sacrifice daily must necessarily give the charge of their oblations to priests, whom they surrogate as the vicars and successors of Christ. By this surrogation they not only rob Christ of his honor, and take from him the prerogative of an eternal priesthood, but attempt to remove him from the right hand of his father, where he cannot sit immortal without being an eternal priest nor let them allege that their priestlings are not substituted for christ as if he were dead but are only substitutes in that eternal priesthood which therefore ceases not to exist the words of the apostle are too stringent to leave them any means of evasion viz. They truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Hebrews 7.23-24 and 24. Yet such is their dishonesty, that to defend their impiety they arm themselves with the example of Melchizedek as he is said to have brought forth Abtulisi, bread and wine. Genesis 14.18 They infer that it was a prelude to their Mass, as if there was any resemblance between him and Christ in the offering of bread and wine. This is too silly and frivolous to need refutation. Melchizedek gave bread and wine to Abraham and his companions that he might refresh them when worn out with the march and the battle. What has this to do with sacrifice? The humanity of the holy king is praised by Moses. These men absurdly coin a mystery of which there is no mention. They, however, put another gloss upon their error, because it is immediately added, he was priest of the Most High God. I answer, that they erroneously rest to bread and wine what the apostle refers to blessing. This Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham and blessed him. Hence the same apostle, and a better interpreter cannot be desired, infers his excellence. Without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. But if the oblation of Melchizedek was a figure of the sacrifice of the Mass, I ask, would the Apostle, who goes into the minutest details, have forgotten a matter so grave and serious. Now, however, they quibble, it is in vain for them to attempt to destroy the argument which is adduced by the apostle himself. Viz. that the right and honor of the priesthood has ceased among mortal men, because Christ, who is immortal, is the one perpetual priest. Three. Another iniquity chargeable on the Mass is that it sinks and buries the cross and passion of Christ. This much indeed is most certain. The cross of Christ is overthrown the moment an altar is erected. For if on the cross he offered himself in sacrifice, that he might sanctify us forever and purchase eternal redemption for us. Undoubtedly the power and efficacy of his sacrifice continues without end. Otherwise we should not think more honorably of Christ than of the oxen and calves which were sacrificed under the law, the offering of which is proved to have been weak and inefficacious because often repeated. Wherefore. It must be admitted either that the sacrifice which Christ offered on the cross wanted the power of eternal cleansing, or that he performed this once forever by his one sacrifice. Accordingly, the apostle says, Now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again." By the which act we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, for by one offering he hath perfected for ever them that are sanctified. To this he subjoins the celebrated passage: Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. The same thing Christ intimated by his latest voice when on giving up the ghost he exclaimed it is finished we are accustomed to observe the last words of the dying as oracular christ when dying declares that by his one sacrifice is perfected and fulfilled whatever was necessary to our salvation to such a sacrifice whose perfection he so clearly declared, shall we, as if it were imperfect, presume daily to append innumerable sacrifices? Since the sacred word of God not only affirms, but proclaims and protests that this sacrifice was once accomplished and remains eternally in force, do not those who demand another charge it with imperfection and weakness. But to what tends the Mass, which has been established, that a hundred thousand sacrifices may be performed every day, but just to bury and suppress the passion of our Lord, in which he offered himself to his Father as the only victim who but a blind man does not see, that it was satanic audacity to oppose a truth so clear and transparent. I am not unaware of the impostures by which the father of lies is wont to cloak his fraud, viz. that the sacrifices are not different or various, but that the one sacrifice is repeated. Such smoke is easily dispersed. The apostle, during his whole discourse, contends not only that there are no other sacrifices, but that that one was once offered, and is no more to be repeated. The more subtle try to make their escape by a still narrower loophole, viz. that it is not repetition, but application. But there is no more difficulty in confuting this sophism also. For Christ did not offer himself once, in the view that his sacrifice should be daily ratified by new oblations, but that, by the preaching of the gospel and the dispensation of the sacred supper, the benefit of it should be communicated to us. Thus Paul says that Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us and bids us keep the feast. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8 The method, I say, in which the cross of Christ is duly applied to us is when the enjoyment is communicated to us and we receive it with true faith. 4. But it is worth while to hear on what other foundation besides they rear up their sacrifice of the mass to this end they drag in the prophecy of Malachi, in which the Lord promises that in every place incense shall be offered unto my name and a pure offering Malachi one eleven as if it were new or unusual for the prophets, when they speak of the calling of the Gentiles, to designate the spiritual worship of God to which they call them by the external rites of the law, more familiarly to intimate to the men of their age that they were to be called into the true fellowship of religion, just as in general they are wont to describe the truth which has been exhibited by the gospel by the types of their own age. This they used going up to Jerusalem for conversion to the Lord, the bringing of all kinds of gifts for the adoration of God, dreams and visions for the more ample knowledge with which believers were to be endued in the kingdom of Christ. The passage they quote from Malachi resembles one in Isaiah in which the prophet speaks of three altars to be erected in Assyria, Egypt, and Judea. First, I ask, whether or not they grant that this prophecy is fulfilled in the kingdom of Christ. Secondly, where are those altars? Or when were they ever erected? Thirdly, do they suppose that a single temple is destined for a single kingdom, as was that of Jerusalem. If they ponder these things, they will confess, I think, that the prophet, under types adapted to his age, prophesied concerning the propagation of the spiritual worship of God over the whole world. This is the answer which we give them. But, as obvious examples everywhere occur in the Scripture, I am not anxious to give a longer enumeration although they are miserably deluded in this also, that they acknowledge no sacrifice but that of the Mass, whereas in truth believers now sacrifice to God and offer Him a pure offering, of which we shall speak by and by. 5. I now come to the third part of the Mass, in regard of which we are to explain how it obliterates the true and only death of Christ, and drives it from the memory of men. For as among men, the confirmation of a testament depends upon the death of the testator. So also the testament by which he has bequeathed to us remission of sins and eternal righteousness, our Lord has confirmed by his death. Those who dare to make any change or innovation on this testament deny his death. And hold it as of no moment. Now, what is the Mass but a new and altogether different testament? What? Does not each Mass promise a new forgiveness of sins, a new purchase of righteousness, so that now there are as many testaments as there are Masses? Therefore, let Christ come again, and by another death, make this New Testament, or rather by innumerable deaths, ratify the innumerable testaments of the Mass. Said I not true, then, at the outset, that the only true death of Christ is obliterated by the Mass? For what is the direct aim of the Mass but just to put Christ again to death, if that were possible? For as the Apostle says, Where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Hebrews 9.16 The novelty of the Mass bears on the face of it to be a testament of Christ and therefore demands his death. Besides, it is necessary that the victim which is offered be slain and immolated. If Christ is sacrificed at each Mass, he must be cruelly slain every moment in a thousand places. This is not my argument, but the Apostle's. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. Hebrews nine twenty-five and 26. I admit that they are ready with an answer, by which they even charge us with calumny, for they say that we object to them what they never thought and could not even think. We know that the life and death of Christ are not at all in their hand. Whether they meant to slay him, we regard not. Our intention is only to show the absurdity consequent in their impious and accursed dogma. This I demonstrate from the mouth of the Apostle. Though they insist a hundred times that if this sacrifice is bloodless, Hanaymaktan, I will reply that it depends not on the will of man to change the nature of sacrifice, or in this way the sacred and inviolable institution of God would fall. Hence it follows that the principle of the Apostle stands firm. Without shedding of blood is no remission. Hebrews 9.22 6. The fourth property of the Mass which we are to consider is that it robs us of the benefit which redounded to us from the death of Christ, while it prevents us from recognizing it and thinking of it. For who can think that he has been redeemed by the death of Christ when he sees a new redemption in the Mass? Who can feel confident that his sins have been remitted when he sees a new remission? It will not do to say that the only ground on which we obtain forgiveness of sins in the Mass is because it has been already purchased by the death of Christ. For this is just equivalent to saying that we are redeemed by Christ on the condition that we redeem ourselves. For the doctrine which is disseminated by the ministers of Satan, Satan, and which in the present day they defend by clamor, fire, and sword, is that when we offer Christ to the Father in the Mass, we by this work of oblation obtain remission of sins and become partakers of the sufferings of Christ. What is now left for the sufferings of Christ but to be an example of redemption, that we may thereby learn to be our own redeemers? Christ himself, when he seals our assurance of pardon in the supper, does not bid his disciples stop short at that act, but sends them to the sacrifice of his death, intimating. That the supper is the memento, or as it is commonly expressed, the memorial from which they may learn that the expiatory victim by which God was to be appeased was to be offered only once. For it is not sufficient to hold that Christ is the only victim, without adding that his is the only immolation, in order that our faith may be fixed to his cross. 7. I come now to the crowning point, viz. that the sacred supper, on which the Lord left the memorial of his passion formed and engraved, was taken away, hidden, and destroyed, when the mass was erected. While the supper itself is a gift of God, which was to be received with thanksgiving, The sacrifice of the Mass pretends to give a price to God to be received as satisfaction. As widely as giving differs from receiving, does sacrifice differ from the sacrament of the Supper? But herein does the wretched ingratitude of man appear, that when the liberality of the Divine Goodness ought to have been recognized, and thanks returned, He makes God to be his debtor. The sacrament promised that by the death of Christ we were not only restored to life once, but constantly quickened because all the parts of our salvation were then completed. The sacrifice of the Mass uses a very different language. Viz, that Christ must be sacrificed daily in order that he may lend something to us. The supper was to be dispensed at the public meeting of the church to remind us of the communion by which we are all united in Christ Jesus. This communion, the sacrifice of the Mass, dissolves and tears asunder. For after the heresy prevailed, that there behoved to be priests to sacrifice for the people as if the supper had been handed over to them, It ceased to be communicated to the assembly of the faithful according to the command of the Lord. Entrance has been given to private masses, which more resemble a kind of excommunication than that communion ordained by the Lord, when the priestling, about to devour his victim apart, separates himself from the whole body of the faithful that there may be no mistake, I call it a private Mass, whenever there is no partaking of the Lord's Supper among believers, though at the same time a great multitude of persons may be present. 8. The origin of the name of Mass I have never been able, certainly, to ascertain. It seems probable that it was derived from the offerings which were collected. Hence, the ancients usually speak of it in the plural number. But without raising any controversy as to the name, I hold that private masses are diametrically opposed to the institution of Christ, and are therefore an impious profanation of the sacred supper. For what did the Lord enjoin? Was it not to take and divide amongst ourselves? What does Paul teach as to the observance of this command? Is it not that the breaking of bread is the communion of body and blood? 1 Corinthians 10.16 Therefore, when one person takes without distributing, where is the resemblance? But that one acts in the name of the whole church. By what command? Is it not openly to mock God when one privately seizes for himself what ought to have been distributed among a number? But, as the words, both of our Savior and of Paul, are sufficiently clear, we must briefly conclude that wherever there is no breaking of bread for the communion of the faithful, there is no supper of the Lord. But a false and preposterous imitation of the supper. But false imitation is adulteration. Moreover, the adulteration of this high ordinance is not without impiety. In private masses, therefore, there is an impious abuse. And as in religion, one fault ever and anon begets another. After that custom of offering without communion once crept in, they began gradually to make innumerable masses in all the separate corners of the churches and to draw the people hither and thither when they ought to have formed one meeting and thus recognized the mystery of their unity. Let them now go and deny their idolatry when they exhibit the bread in their masses, that it may be adored for Christ. In vain do they talk of those promises of the presence of Christ, which, however they may be understood, were certainly not given that impure and profane men might form the body of Christ as often as they please, and for whatever abuse they please but that believers, while with religious observance they follow the command of Christ in celebrating the supper, might enjoy the true participation of it. 9. We may add that this perverse course was unknown to the purer church, for however the more impudent among our opponents may attempt to gloss the matter. It is absolutely certain that all antiquity is opposed to them, as has been above demonstrated in other instances, and may be more surely known by the diligent reading of the fathers. But before I conclude, I ask our missile doctors, seeing they know that obedience is better than sacrifice, and God commands us to listen to his voice rather than to offer sacrifice, 1 Samuel 15:22. How they can believe this method of sacrificing to be pleasing to God, since it is certain that he does not command it, and they cannot support it by one syllable of Scripture. Besides, when they hear the apostle declaring that no man taketh his honor to himself but he that is called of God, as was Aaron, so also Christ glorified not himself, to be made an high priest. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Hebrews 5, 4 and 5. They must either prove God to be the author and founder of their priesthood, or confess that there is no honor from God in an office into which, without being called, they have rushed with wicked temerity. They cannot produce one iota of Scripture in support of their priesthood, and must not the sacrifices be vain, since they cannot be offered without a priest. End of section 39. Recording by Bill Mosley, Frellsburg, Texas, USA.